This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Good day, everyone. Thank you all for being here. We have another great program for you today. For this episode, we greet Ms. Linda Whiting, the director of the Fraser Farmstead Museum, and Mr. John Ehart, a local historian and one of the founders of the Milton Freewater Historical Society. This is an absolutely beautiful museum complex located in Milton Freewater, Oregon, and listed on the National Register of Historic Places. It's operated and maintained as a restored house and farm museum by the Milton Freewater Area Historical Society. The Fraser home was built in 1892 and houses a fine collection of antique furnishings and other items of 19th century daily living. Some of the furnishings are the original items to the home. The site also houses a 1918 barn, a carriage house, and several other buildings all of which were an integral part of a turn-of-the-century working farm. Hey, this is our Thanksgiving episode with Linda Whiting, John Ehart, and the Fraser Farmstead Museum. I've really been looking forward to meeting these two and learning more about the society and the museum because I'll tell you, it's absolutely a beautifully preserved property and well worth a visit and your support. It's a peaceful spot to spend a day and a wonderful place to have a wedding that you'll remember for a lifetime. By the end of this episode, I hope you'll see the heritage, history, and beauty in this wonderful farmstead museum and will want to visit often, join, and support them in their mission. For our Thanksgiving tribute, here's a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson's We Thank Thee. For each new morning with its light, for rest and shelter through each night, for health and food, for love and friends, for everything thy goodness sends, we thank thee, Lord, until time ends. Hey, I'm Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and I'm coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we feature information about museums, cultural and heritage institutions, associations, historical and genealogical societies, and history-focused media creators across the United States. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com, but you can find us on nearly all podcast platforms as well as Rumble, Getter, Minds, TikTok, Facebook, Odyssey, and YouTube. So wherever you listen to the program, 
I really appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, just spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. On our next episode of Preservation Oaks, we meet with Janet Weber, the president of the Genealogical Society of Washington County, located in Hillsboro, Oregon. The Genealogical Society of Washington County was formed in 1992. The group is dedicated to promoting the study of genealogy and the preservation of family heritage. I'm looking forward to meeting Janet Weber and learning more about this interesting and locally supported society. They look like a great group and they look like they have a lot of fun. That being said, let's get this show snapping. Our historical November events for this episode. On November 1st, 1848, the first medical school for women opened in Boston. The Boston Female Medical School was founded by Samuel Gregory with just 12 students. In 1874, the school merged with the Boston University School of Medicine, becoming one of the first co-ed medical schools. Happy birthday on November 6, 1861, to Mr. James Naismith, the inventor of the game of basketball. James lived from 1861 to 1939 and was born in Almonte, Ontario, Canada. On November 7, 1967, Carl Stokes became the first African-American mayor in the United States, elected as the mayor of Cleveland, Ohio. On November 7, 1989, L. Douglas Wilder became the first African-American governor in the United States history, elected as the governor of Virginia. Happy birthday on November 7 to Reverend Billy Graham, Reverend Graham was a Christian evangelist who was born near Charlotte, North Carolina, November 7, 1918. After his conversion at a revival meeting at age 16, he embarked on a career of preaching and has become known worldwide. He died on February 21, 2018, at age 99. On November 17, 1734, New York Weekly Journal publisher John Peter Zenger was arrested and charged with libeling the colonial governor of New York. In his trial held in August of 1735, truth was successfully used as a defense against libel, an important early step toward freedom of the press in America. On November 17, 1800, the United States Congress met for the first time in the new capital at Washington, D.C., and President John Adams then became the first occupant of the executive mansion, later renamed the White House. Happy birthday on November 25th to American financier Andrew Carnegie, who lived from 1835 to 1919. He was born in Dunfermline, Scotland. He emigrated to America, made his fortune in steel, then became a major philanthropist. Among his gifts, over 2,500 libraries. He built libraries all over the country. Carnegie Hall he built, Carnegie Foundation, and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He once wrote, The man who dies rich 
dies disgraced. He did a lot for this country. On November 26, 1789, the first American holiday occurred, proclaimed by George Washington, the president, to be Thanksgiving Day, a day of prayer and public thanksgiving in gratitude for the successful establishment of the new American Republic. Happy birthday on November 26 to Harvard College founder John Harvard, who lived from 1607 to 1638. He was born in London. Happy birthday on November 26 to American physician and women's rights leader Mary Edwards Walker. She lived from 1832 to 1990 and was born in Oswego, New York. She was the first female surgeon in the U.S. Army, serving during the Civil War. She was captured and spent four months in a Confederate prison. In 1865, she became the first and only woman ever to receive the Medal of Honor. Thank you to thehistoryplace.com for our November events. Let's drink some tea, some Twinies tea. Ah, love Twinies tea. Okay, so let's start with a brief biography of our guests, Linda and John. Linda Whiting is the daughter of a teacher who served in a private school system which necessitated frequent family relocations. Because of that, Linda experienced a unique educational journey, attending three high schools and three colleges. Intriguingly, she decided to follow in her father's footsteps and pursued a teaching career herself. Between her teaching tenure in California during the mid-1980s and her relocation to Milton Freewater, Oregon in 1994, Linda embarked on an adventurous five-year chapter of her life on the Micronesian island of Pompeii. There, she dedicated her time as a volunteer teacher and contributed to the local community college. It was during this period that Linda and her husband welcomed their youngest daughter, affectionately dubbing her their two-bit babe due to her amusingly low birthing cost of a mere quarter. Linda devoted 24 years to the Milton Freewater School District, where she taught grades 1 through 5, and also served as a school librarian for six of those years. Her professional journey took an interesting turn in 2018 when she opted for an early retirement and began a part-time role at the museum. Very soon, Linda is set to embark on a new chapter in her life. She'll be moving on, prioritizing quality time with her parents and grandchildren. Beyond her teaching career, Linda has also showcased her creativity as an author of a devotional poetry book entitled With All My Heart, Mind, and Soul. In her leisure time, she indulges in the joy of exploring new places, cherishing moments with her family, and savoring the pleasures of reading. Now, John Ehart is one of the founding members of the Milton Freewater Area Historical Society and a local historian. He's lived in the Milton Freewater area since 1970. He first managed the Griggs department store and later owned the Nature Gardens flower shop in the center of town for 35 years. John is a board member of the Milton Freewater Area Historical Society and a nonagenarian of some renown in the Milton Freewater area. We are so happy to have him with us today. Welcome to the program, Linda and John. 
How's the weather for you guys today? It's cold. It was, I think it's like 42 degrees and damp. Oh, wow. Last night it was, it was down to 32. And the few days before that, it was in the 20s for about two or three days. And then it warmed up to in the 30s. Where are you, Sean? Salt Lake City. Salt Lake, okay. Yeah. What's the main attraction in the area that visitors can come to experience? We're part of the Walla Walla Valley, even though we're in Oregon and Walla Walla is in Washington. But we look at ourselves as one valley and it is known for its agriculture. And we have had, for the last 20 years, wineries have been popping up throughout the valley. So there's a lot of tasting rooms and places and a couple of breweries that are fun. And we also have some historical sites. Walla Walla is the place where the Whitman Mission is located from when Marcus and uh, Narcissa Whitman were here and people have heard about the massacre that occurred there. And as I was going to mention later is that the Oregon Trail, one of the Oregon Trails, the Oregon Trail isn't just one road, it would branch off. And so one of the branches came up over the Blue Mountains into our valley. And uh, so the history is quite unique in that regards to the pioneer history. And then we have Fort Walla Walla, which was prominent during the Indian Wars. So there's agriculture, wineries, and history. Hey, cool. Now, what's this mission that's famous in the area? The Whitman Mission. I know this is more than just known in our state, but a lot of people have heard of the Whitman Massacre back in the 1840s. Marcus and Narcissa Whitman, were the, she was the first white woman to come this side of the Rocky Mountains. Okay. And they settled in the Walla Walla Valley in the late 1830s and established a mission that there were three Native American tribes here. One prominent one was the Cayuse, and it was their goal to teach the gospel to the Indians. But there were some problems, and it ended up in Marcus and his wife being killed, along with some others. It's known as the Whitman Massacre. Oh, wow. A lot of people have heard of Whitman College, which is a well-known Ivy League college here, and it's named after Marcus Whitman. So it's not just a local history point of interest. But, and you can see when you go to the Whitman Mission ruts in the road where the wagons travel across. Wow. So they would come down near where we are located at the Fraser Farmstead Museum and go about 10 miles till they got to the Whitman Mission. Cool. So, so was it like a fort or was it just a building or what was it they like? Had, they had some houses and outbuildings. They had farm not a fort. No, it was not a fort. It was it was a church mission. It wasn't a Catholic. It was Protestant. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. So Walla Walla was that an Walla. Indian name? Yes, means many waters, because we have lots of rivers and streams. Our museum is located on the Walla Walla River. Yeah. In fact, that's one reason the Fraser family settled here. It's an absolutely beautiful part of the country, I tell you. Yeah. Anybody listening, you should go on your favorite map app and just take a look. It's just beautiful. It's a beautiful valley. Yeah. We're surrounded by a lot of wheat land, but in the valley itself, we're known for fruit crops, asparagus, and Walla Walla is known for its Walla Walla onions. 
So there's a lot of yummy produce. And when the railroads came, that was a big thing to ship produce across the country from our valley. And Milton Freewater itself is known for, in the 1950s, they had a pea processing cannery here that produced 7% of the nation's canned peas. It's known for its food processing industry, too. That's a lot going on in your area. Holy cow. I read somewhere that the Milton Freewater Area Historical Society operates and maintains the Fraser Farmstead Museum. What's the history of the Milton Freewater Area Historical Society? John is my guest here today, and he was the person who was responsible. It kind of started by accident, in a way, and it's really entwined with the Fraser Farmstead Museum story. It was in 1982 that John, who loves things history, came across an old cabin. It was run down. It was an old log cabin just a few miles from where the current museum is near the Tumalum River. And he saw that it was getting destroyed. Kids would camp out there and he was worried it would end up being burnt up or something. And so he got the idea that he wanted to move it somewhere. And he also was going to research it. He didn't know much about it. So he went to the local chamber of commerce and asked if there was a local historical society. And they said no. And in a couple days, the chamber director called John and said, congratulations, you're our first president of the Milton Freewater Area Historical Society. And so <laughs> that was 1982. And that's kind of how it began. And from that point on, a committee was formed. And at the same time, it happened that a longtime pioneer family resident, Layla Frazier, had passed away. And she had left in her will her, her interest and desire to have the six-acre farmstead turned into some sort of a museum because of the history of the town of Milton Freewater. And John heard about that. And so working together with her lawyers, putting in a proposal, they came up with a plan that they would move the cabin to the Fraser estate and that her desire, Layla's desire to have a museum could be fulfilled. So it took a couple years and it was October of 1984 when the Fraser Farmstead opened and they still had some work to do to get the cabin here. I think it wasn't until 1986 that the cabin was put onto the property. And in that time, John had researched it and discovered that it had a lot of history for the area. It had once belonged to a man named Thomas McCoy. He had made his fortune by going to the minefields of California and brought his money up here and bought some land, and he built that cabin. 1856. In 1856. And he brought his family out from the Midwest. He had five children. And he eventually used his gold money to build a real fancy house that was kind of the talk of the valley. And the significance of him was that he was here before Oregon was a state. And when Oregon became a state, he became the first county commissioner for either Umatilla County. He uh, was the first one to hold a deeded land title. And that cabin turns out to be one of the oldest wooden structures in our state. And a, a side note is he was also the first one to have a court case where he sued Nineveh Ford, who is a well-known name in history, in pioneer history, over water rights that resulted in some waterways being split and 
So it just kind of was fortuitous that a little cabin out in a wheat field that was sitting there all dilapidated was rescued and it ended up causing the formation of the historical society and the development and implementation of the Fraser Farmstead Museum. Way to go, John. That's fantastic. Else to add, John? Did I miss anything? I think you did great. That was very good. Wow. That was serendipitous. Yeah. Right. I might add the McCoy cabin was on the banks of the uh, Walla Walla River at a point where the tribes in their migration to the Columbia River area passed through. And uh, on his property, it was known as the McCoy Crossing. And the tribes would occasionally camp there at his place. He got along with them quite well. And there was, they would do a lot of training. A, a mm-hmm. real part of our local history, yes. Wow. And are the tribes still in the area? So they have formed a new tribe. They, they, there were three tribes, the Walla Walla Indians, the Umatilla Indians, and the Cayuse Indians. And I'm not, not sure of the year, but they are now considered the Confederate, Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. Cool. And their headquarters are in Pendleton, Oregon, which is 29 miles south of us. That's very cool. Very cool. Wow. Thank you for that. Milton Freewater is right up close to the border with the state of Washington. What's the history of the town? The museum encompasses that history in that it was in 1867-68. This area had no town in particular. There were some scattered cabins and I think there was a blacksmith shop maybe and the McCoys were here. People had discovered it little by little from the publishment. Going back to the Whitmans, Marcus Whitman had made a trip walking back to Washington, D.C. in, I think, 1842 to let people know of what was going on out here. And that kind of got some interest in people coming to this area. But in 1867, after the Civil War, William and Rachel Frazier decided to uproot from Texas. They wanted to make a new start. Uh, William had been briefly in the Civil War as a Confederate soldier. And I think it had been a tough time. So he gathered his seven children and his wife and set out in three wagons that were pulled by horses and mules. His wife was nine months along, ready to deliver their ninth child, but that didn't stop them. And they headed north from Texas to Nebraska and headed across the Oregon Trail. They took about six months to get here, and they were headed for the Willamette Valley, like a lot of people were near Portland, Oregon. They happened to meet the mayor of Walla Walla when they were camped in the Grand Oregon, which is about, I would say, 80 miles from here, maybe less. And he convinced them there wasn't any more room over in the Willamette Valley and that they should come here. So they decided to do that. And they ended up buying 320 acres. He had five boys. And I forgot to mention his wife gave birth when they were camped on the Platte River in Nebraska with she gave birth to her son, Thomas. Wow. So they had him and they had their oldest daughter who was married to Andrew Elam and she had a one-year-old. So when they got here, he started life as a farmer, but he really liked it here. And in 18, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1872, he and his son-in-law and his sons decided they wanted to start a town. So they laid out the plat lines and they got the town incorporated. And back then they called it Milton, Oregon. and. So 
that's kind of the early history of the place and how it got started. Wow. And what did he name it Milton for? Well, his reasoning was, at least his family says, that he loved the poet John Milton. But other people say, no, it was named Milton because this was a mill town. There were three mills in the area. There was a flour mill and lumber mill. But the family of the first postmaster claims they know the reason because the first postmaster was originally from Milton, New York, and that he brought the name here. So no one can say for sure, but all three of those are very good reasons for the name Milton. That's a wonderful history and heritage. Wonderful. Wow. Freebird has its part two. What has its part two? Well, you know, the name of our town is Milton Freewater. Yeah. So there's a lot of, there's some history there about Freewater and how that came to be because that was a separate town. Milton was a pretty conservative town. And I think maybe they had, there were a lot of Methodists and they had maybe one saloon. The folklore story that I've heard was that one day some scoundrel rode his horse into the saloon and shot his gun off and it scared people. And so they shut the saloon down. I don't really know if that story is true. I do know that the saloon was shut down and it made some people mad. So they went just about a mile or two north and decided to start their own town. They debated about the name, but they decided on free water for two possible reasons. One was that they offered free water rights to people who would move there. But again, the folklore is that the water ran freely. They had several saloons going. So that's kind of the history. And they were two separate towns that sometimes were rivals and sometimes were friends. Until about the late 40s, they started talking about merging the two towns. And it was 1950 that after a lot of contentious discussion, they decided, let's make it one. It would be more efficient. So in 1950, it became Milton Freewater. And for some time, it was the only hyphenated town in the United States. But I think the post office has taken the hyphen away for some reason lately. But huh. anyway, that's a brief history of Milton Freewater. Oh, that's very cool. All over a saloon closing. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. very cool. <laughs> all right. Thank you for all that history. That's nice. There, there was one other thing I had when I came to town. In uh, 1970, there was a sign outside of town that said, Welcome to Milton Freewater, the all-American city. So someone declared it the all-American city when they were doing that because of the fact they were able to get together and join and oh. make it one town. Very cool. That must have been a selling point, huh? Right. Very cool. Thank you, John. Are there any unique challenges or opportunities in preserving heritage in Milton Freewater? Our museum is one of the most important and available opportunities for preserving history here. When the museum was in the, the museum was formed in 1984. So in 1986, there was a woman named Gwen Martin who was really interested in ancestry and genealogy. And she agreed to donate time in fact, 10 years of time to research the genealogy of all the pioneers in the valley that included the little towns of that are just south of us, Athena and West and, and Milton Freewater. And she spent 10 years and came up with about 
14,000 names where she chronicled, researched family history. And it's a very wonderful part of the museum to have that history. We get inquiries all the time about people trying to find out about their family that they had seen that they had been in Milton at some point in time. And so it's a valuable resource. So I think that the museum serves as an important a holding place for genealogy of early pioneer families to this area. No kidding. And the museum itself and the grounds and the, and the barn and the various buildings have to be maintained all the time, right? Yes. I mean, you have winters. Really of doing that. Because people who come here say, wow, it's beautiful. We've been for a long time considered a kind of a hidden gem because some people don't know about us. We're not just on the main road. But when they come here, they're really impressed over and over about how well it's been kept up. Yeah. And as I went to my map app and did a street view, and I, I was able to look, peer into the property, it's absolutely beautiful. You can walk through and you can sit down and you can have a, a leisurely lunch and just enjoy your day. It's just a wonderful place. And it's near the Walla Walla River with it and just through the backfield. And there's a nice little, there's a levee along the river now. Before that, it, there used to be a lot of flooding. But once the levee was put in, there's a nice walkway along the river, yeah. which is another actor. Yeah, very nice. And so when I think about challenges and opportunities, you know, the opportunity is you have all of this research done and you can help people. And the challenges would be maintaining that, keeping it up, maintaining your funding sources and, you know, making sure that you can constantly keep the painting up and the, and the roofs exactly. and, you know, all of those things. That's important. And that's often overlooked when you're going for special projects, you all the time have to go after grant money. And there's a lot of foundations and grantors that don't like to give capital projects, such as painting the barn. Right. But um, we've been able to get some money for that. We're working on our next project. We had the barn painted a couple years ago. We had a local roofing company donate the roofing for the McCoy cabin, Thank the goodness. specialized wooden slats on top of it, shingles. And then we need to have the house painted and we also have an outbuilding called a carriage house. So that's what we're looking for funding for that. But that's an ongoing thing. It's an, and it's vitally important. I don't know if everybody realizes like when you've driven by a, an old barn that's starting to fall down, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I always think, wow, I wish they could take care of that. Yeah. You know? And I, it's expensive, but I think it's an important thing to do. So and we it's expensive to do, to do that properly and, too. Yeah, I mean, you could go in and throw definitely. some lumber supports and things like that, but that's not the proper way to preserve things. We need to do it historically. Yeah, absolutely. And that house was built in 1892. And yes. I'd love to see it here in 2092 or 2192, just as it sits, you know. Definitely. If you look at Europe, you know, you go to Europe and there are places there, you know, when I look at YouTube videos, they're these people are buying French chateaus that were built in the 1100s and re revitalizing them. And it's just amazing. And, you know, these places have been there for 500, you know, a thousand years in some cases. And I'd like that, that house to be there that long. Crazy. It's hard to comprehend that, but yes, that's yeah. great. 
our our nation just isn't that old yet but that house needs to be there we're trying yep absolutely and, and it's good that you have the support of the community that's really good which is kind of interesting in that early on when john was working on getting the farmstead to be listed on historical sites and to become a museum he invited the president of the South Oregon Historical Society to come tour the place and talk about, would it be really feasible to turn this into a museum? And his recommendation was, hmm, I don't know. Do you really want to do this? You're a small community. Are you going to get the support from the community? Are you going to get the funding necessary for it? It was just kind of a, what you'd say, a Debbie Downer letter, like, you have a nice place, but I'm just not sure that this is going to work out to be yeah. a museum, especially a house museum. And so against those odds and his recommendation, they were able to do it. And I have to say, in my six years as director, the community support here is just astounding. They are just an amazing group of community members. And we are very fortunate in that respect. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful place to preserve. Now, in all the research that was done, the 14,000 um, pioneers and so on, what are some of the lesser known facts or stories about Milton Freewater's history that the farmstead has helped to uncover? There's several. I don't know if people know that Milton Freewater is home to the oldest and once upon a time, the largest plant nursery in the Pacific Northwest. It was founded by a man named Aaron Miller. And... He, there's an interesting story. He had traveled to California and lived in different places across the country. And when he first came here, there was only a blacksmith shop, a stage station, and several houses. And he wanted to start this nursery. He had lost his first wife, and he went back east to find a new wife. And he found a lady named Samaria, who was 16 years his, he was her senior. And he led a wagon train. West, and he told her on the way back coming west that you can only bring very minimal things. She snuck in two of her prized possessions, which were a flat iron and a wooden a maple, no, it was walnut rolling pin that her husband had made for her. And along on the journey, the party had camped, they got up for the day and were headed off. And five miles down the road, Samaria said, Stop. She had left her rolling pin behind at the campsite. She made the whole wagon train stop, and her husband rode back on horseback to get it for her. So he must have loved her very much. Yeah. But they started the Milton Nursery Company in 1878 here in Milton, and it produced lots of plants and food variety, roses. We found we have a couple of old catalogs from the 1920s and established one of the, it's the oldest nursery in the Pacific Northwest. So that's something I don't know that everybody knows. Another thing is that once upon a time, we had three flumes that came down from the Blue Mountains. When I heard this, I was just flabbergasted because when you look at the Blue Mountains, I think that they go up to maybe 5,000 feet in elevation, but it just seems impossible that you could build a log flume or a water flume that would come miles down from the mountain that would bring logs and water. And in 1888, they had electricity here in Milton Freewater that was probably the second earliest in the Pacific Northwest. I know the Willamette Valley in Oregon City used water. 
for hydroelectricity. But in 1888, there was a mill here and one of the sons of the miller, they generated electricity with a water wheel. And he realized they were making more than that they could use in their mill. And so he got the idea that if he could sell local homes that were nearby a light bulb and they could string a line to their house, the, he would sell it for $5 and they would have one light bulb in their house that they could move around. Oh, cool. Go ahead, John. Uh, interesting thing on, on that subject, my, my daughter and son-in-law just purchased the uh, remains of the diversion dam that fed that flume, that uh, eight, eight foot wooden flume for several miles down to the powerhouse. And uh, they're in the process of, of rescuing what was left of the diversion dam after the flood that we had in 2020. Yeah. That's a neat history. And when you drive up the Walla Walla River Road, you can still see remnants of the trestle that held the flume. And an interesting story is one of the flumes that carried logs went to a little town near Yuma Pine, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what, eight miles from here. And a little community grew up there of poor people. They called it, they had a school they called the dump school because the flume ended there. And when they stopped sending logs down. I read a recollection of a kid who went to school there and he said every now and then a salmon or two would come flopping down that flume and they just got a kick out of it. So it's just to, to comprehend that they had engineered and built those flumes in a way that created hydroelectricity and enabled the lumber industry to flourish is kind of amazing. Yeah, that's very You have cool. to stand here and, look and see how on earth did they do that? Yeah. John, is your son thinking about preserving the dam and preserving the flume? That's in the that's in the thought process right now. They've only had it for a couple of months now. It would uh, be awesome. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. Thank you for that, guys. So what's the history of the buildings on the farmstead? We've mentioned that the house was built in 1892. What are the other buildings? When were they built? So when the Frasers got here, they lived in a log cabin closer to the river for 24 years. And then Mrs. Fraser died during that time. And Mr. Fraser built this house, like you said. He only lived in it four years. And then it was inherited by his son, William Jr., who had been five when they came west and who had grown up to become one of the largest wheat farmers in Oregon. He had 6,000 acres of wheat land. And... They built, in 1918, they built what is known as a prairie barn. It was originally a Dutch design, but it was very common in the Midwest. And that was to hold the horses and if they had a cow or two. And then it has a loft in it that held loose hay that could hold 10,000 cubic yards of, of loose hay. and would hold grain. And then there is a carriage house that I know over time has been built on. And I'm not exactly sure what was stored in there. I'm guessing the carriages, since it was called a carriage house. Yeah. And it's used for storage. And that's one of the buildings we need to restore because the add-on part on the back is starting to fall down a little bit. And then there was a chicken coop, which is now the storage shed for our tables and chairs for our weddings or events. And we have a tool shed. And there was an old garage for their 1913 Model T that had a pit in it so that they could work on it. 
And we, when I first came here, that my first project was to renovate that and add really nice ADA compliant restrooms to it. And we were able to raise $140,000 to do that. And it's a very nice facility where we now have, instead of a garage, it's what we call our bridal cottage. And then some modern restrooms. Because in the past, anytime they had an event, they had to have porta-potties brought here. So that's been a very good addition to the property. Oh, yeah. Makes it so much nicer. Yeah. We've added a Native American teepee. And we did have a plan. We've been trying to get a one-room schoolhouse here. One of our missions is to work with the younger generation and to make this a place where children can come and learn about history. We have an elementary school just three blocks away that's located on the old canning site where they made the cans of peas, Rogers Ferry. And so I've invited kids down here for field trips and I just thought it would be fun to have a complete place where they could go from station to station and learn about different things. And learning about how education was over 100 years ago would be an important part of that. But we haven't been successful in locating a schoolhouse yet. So that's a future thing. Okay. Now, you talk, You were talking about the wedding venue, and I, I understand that the Fraser Farmstead Museum was voted the best of the best for both museums and wedding venues. What can you tell us about the wedding venue? This is a lovely place for a wedding. We've had fall weddings, spring weddings, summer weddings. We usually do between two and four. The drawback is that it's outside, and so you're dependent on the weather conditions. But we've had some very nice weddings, and our price is very reasonable. It's the lowest in the area, and it includes tables and chairs for over 220 guests. People have the facility for all day. We have in the carriage house, there's two refrigerators, a freezer, and a small space for setting up food. So it is a lovely place. Uh, And besides weddings, we've had graduation parties, birthday parties, different clubs. I've had a motorcycle club come. I've had small groups, book clubs, PEO clubs. That was one of our missions also was to make this place a gathering place for our community. And I think we've done a pretty good job of getting the community aware that this is a great place to meet because there are not a lot of those in the area. So, Yeah, and if they are, they're probably not reasonably priced. No, I know there's a barn uh, wedding venue just a few miles down the road and they charge $6,000, but you have access to the inside of the barn. But we just charge $1,200. So we might have to think about upping our price a little bit. (laughs) It's very reasonable for people who are on a tight budget. You know, we want it to be a place where people can use it and feel like this is our home and it's a part of our community that is accessible to everybody. Plus, if you're worried about the weather, you can always rent tents, right? Yeah. Yeah. In my time here, no wedding has been rained out, so. Oh, fantastic. I also read the Farmstead Museum has something you call Harvest Hosts, which I think is a unique and great service. What can you tell us about that? We found out about this two years ago. It's an organization that's nationwide where people who are into RVing and are self-contained can sign up for membership. I don't think it costs too much more than $100 for them. And we signed up as to be a host. So you can plan your trip and stay one night at places like 
museums and galleries and wineries, alpaca farms and that kind of thing. So we thought, you know, we have six acres. We have a nice field and a parking lot. We're easily accessible and a block away is a dump site for RVs. So this is our second year we've done it. And it's been a great way to get people here that might not have come here because we're a little bit out of the way. And if they come on a day we're open, then they get to tour the museum. And it's by donation basis. It's helped increase our revenue just a bit because I'd say most RVers will donate $20 or more or spend money in our gift shop. So it's a twofold thing where we're not out anything. We provide them brochures and maps, but then they give us a little donation if they so choose and we'll spend money in the gift shop and it makes them aware and they can put reviews on the Harvest Host website to let other people know about us. So it's been a, a fun thing to meet people from across the country. You know, wow. during COVID, it was a big thing with families. We had a lot of families come through here who were on the road because they could do their education through the computer and get away and see new things. And so that was kind of a neat thing. Yeah, very cool service. I think that's great. I haven't seen many historical societies do that. That's really nice. I'd like to provide listeners with the contact information for the museum. You can find them on the web at FraserFarmsteadMuseum.org. On Facebook, they're Fraser Farmstead. Their physical address is 1403 Chestnut Street, Milton Freewater, Oregon. Their mailing address is P.O. Box 764, Milton Freewater, Oregon 97862. You can email them at Fraser1868 at gmail.com. Their phone is 541-938-4636. The museum is open on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. and by special appointment for group tours. The facility is closed January, February, and March. There's no admission charge. However, all donations are welcome. All right. Can you kindly share with the audience an overview of the communities you serve? the variety of your membership and the mission and objectives of the Farmstead Museum and Historical Society? Sure. The community includes the, the entire Walla Walla Valley, which is diverse. We have well-established families here from long ago and then newcomers that come in for the opportunities of work. We have a large Hispanic community here. I would say I was an elementary teacher for years, and I would say that our Hispanic population of students was at least 50% because of the agricultural work that's brought in families. And now they've stayed and established second, third generations. And then the variety of our membership is the same kind of thing. We have people from all over that have somehow have an interest. We have descendants of the Frasers who are members. We have people who are interested in history that have moved away, local people. And our mission is, it's the mission of the Fraser Farmstead Museum to preserve the history of the Milton Freewater area by organizing, collecting, protecting, and making available to the public the history and artifacts of the pioneer families most involved in the founding and development of the community of Milton Freewater and the Walla Walla Valley. We also have the mission to be an educational resource and a venue to be used by Walla Walla Valley community in a way that supports the local arts and the diverse culture through events, workshops, and exhibits. 
And I should add by having school children come for field trips. So in a one sentence, it might be our mission is preserving the past, engaging the present, and enriching the future. Oh, that's nice. That's a nice way to say it. I like that. Linda and John, it's time for a break for a few minutes. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. Are you passionate about history? Join the Fraser Farmstead Museum as a volunteer and make a difference in your community. Contribute your skills and enthusiasm to restoration projects, research initiatives, and community outreach and education programs. Join the dedicated team and help preserve the stories that shape their identity. Volunteer with the Fraser Farmstead Museum as a volunteer, you have the chance to learn about the history of the area and the beautiful artifacts the museum specializes in. You can gain valuable insights and knowledge from experts and the exhibits. You will develop and enhance your communication, research, customer service, event planning, and organizational skills. Volunteering provides networking opportunities and connections that may be beneficial for your career or personal interests. You can immerse yourself in the cultural and artistic aspects of your community or a specific area of interest. Museums are important community assets, and by volunteering, you're contributing to the preservation and promotion of culture and knowledge. You are helping to preserve history and make these resources accessible to the public. Volunteering at the museum looks impressive on your resume, showing potential employers your commitment, interests, and a diverse skill set. Many people find volunteering at the museum to be a fulfilling and rewarding experience as they are contributing to a cause they are passionate about. The museum offers flexible volunteer hours making it easier to fit into your schedule. If you're involved in guiding tours, docent, or educational programs, you can improve your public speaking and presentation skills. The coolest part is that you get to interact with diverse and interesting people. The museum attracts a wide range of visitors, which gives you opportunities to interact with people from different backgrounds and ages. So what are you waiting for? Sign up and join the dedicated team at the Fraser Farmstead Museum and volunteer today. Connect with them on the web at www.fraserfarmsteadmuseum.org. You can visit this beautiful wedding venue and local tourist destination at 1403 Chestnut Street in Milton Freewater, Oregon. You can email them at fraser1868 at gmail.com and you can phone them at 541-938-4636. The museum is open on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. and by special appointment for group tours. The facility is closed January, February, and March. There is no admission charge, however all donations are welcome. 
Thank you. When I was new, I was solid as a rock and ready for work. I could carry 1,700 pounds. My frame was made of hickory, poplar, and my tongue from an ash tree. I was sold to Bill and Mary. They loaded me up almost every week with all manner of things to haul. Spot and Brownie were hitched up to me and we all went along to town. I also hauled things the family needed from town back to the farm. When Mary died suddenly, they put her in me for the gentle final ride to the cemetery. Bill kept using me all the time, through all kinds of weather, I took a beating over those years. Then, for a long time, I stood behind the barn, alongside the thresher, unmoving and slowly rusting. I watched machines go by, hauling more than I can. Finally, I was loaded on the back of a flatbed truck, and they took me to a workshop. There, I was lovingly refurbished. They made sure all my parts were put back like new, and my wheels turned again. I was parked inside a museum. Electric lights show me off, and every day, people talk about how I'm made, how beautiful my wood is, and sometimes, occasionally, someone mentions Mary and Bill. I feel so proud that I can help others understand the past, which I guess I'm now a part of. Rather than throwing it out, Please donate historical records and objects to your local historical society today. This is Laura Weber, Executive Director of the Alabama Agricultural Museum at Landmark Park. Happy Thanksgiving from Dothan, Alabama. This is David Reed, Chief Curator with the Reno County Museum in Hutchinson, Kansas, and I love listening to Sean Thomas Radcliffe on MicroStream Radio. This is Cheyenne Janstetter, Archives Manager and Outreach Associate at the Museum of Danish America. Happy Thanksgiving from Elkhorn, Iowa. your favorite drive-in theater and a sparkling new season. Watch our screen and local newspapers for all the fine shows coming this way. Show after show will feature the latest hits, the biggest stars for fun-filled, pleasure-packed evenings. Relax, come as you are, and spend an enjoyable night out with the entire family. No parking problems, no babysitting problems. And there are always tasty snacks at our modern refreshment stand. Thanks, folks. And once again, welcome back. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe. And we're here today with our guests, Ms. Linda Whiting and Mr. John Ehart from the Fraser Farmstead Museum located in Milton Freewater, Oregon. Welcome back, folks. Thank you. Glad to be back. Yes. Thank you. Linda, John, what are some of the most memorable moments or experiences visitors have shared after visiting the museum? For me, some of the most memorable are when school children come. Remember one time there was, I mentioned that we have a large Hispanic community here. And that community doesn't naturally come to a Pioneer Museum because that's not in their history. And so we've tried to get them interested 
because it's the history of their new home. And so I remember one time we had, I think he was a third grader come. I do a class at a time where the kids come into the museum. I'll read them. We'll talk about museums, what they are, give a little history of this one and tell why it's here. And I'll show them some things. I tend to be a little more hands-on than maybe some other museum directors, but there are some things that are fun. We have an old phone that works and we have a phonograph, Edison phonograph that I play for the kids and a stereoscope that they can look through. I hand them one of those heavy old records to hold and then we'll go into the kitchen sometimes and talk about the things that are same and different. I'll read them a story and we'll do a little craft. And after one of these sessions, this little third grader went home. He was a Hispanic boy. He was so excited about the museum. And I think that was a Friday and he brought his mom and family back on Saturday and he acted as the tour guide. Nice. And so he took his family through and in Spanish told them all the things that he had learned on his visit here. And it's that kind of thing that just makes it worth it. And the kids will write letters and draw pictures and send them to us about their favorite thing. The teachers are good at doing a follow-up activity. So we have two migrant worker camps. One is in Milton Freewater and one is in Walla Walla that originally was for the purpose of migrant workers who would tour the nation doing work as the agricultural industry provided it for them. And for many years, it was more of a temporary residence here, but they've come, they've liked it, and they've stayed. And so we have, you know, several generations here now. Yeah, fantastic. When I grew up, I used to live in a farming community, and we had migrant workers come in every year. And I used to spend a lot of time with the migrant workers living in apartments that, you know, they lived in apartments and migrant camps and that kind of thing. And they were fantastic people. Fantastic. So in the home, in the barn, in the various buildings that you have on the farmstead, what kinds of exhibits are on display? So the households, artifacts that you would find at the turn of the century. Half of the things belong to the Fraser family, and then things have been donated over time that represent life here at the turn of the century, as well as people who've lived here for years. Like recently, um, one of the matriarchs who've lived here a long time passed away, and her family wanted her extensive thimble collection donated to the museum because they feel like this is a great place to reserve history, and they wanted their mom's history. And she also made a lot of rag dolls, Raggedy Andy and Raggedy Ann dolls. She made over a hundred of them in her lifetime. So we have the last two that she made. So it's that kind of thing too. We have five rooms upstairs. One is Layla Frazier's bedroom that has the furniture that she had. It's beautiful oak furniture that was given to her when she turned 16 by her daddy. And On the bed is a quilt that was made, handmade by her 10-year-old cousin, Bessie, who died at the age of 11. So it was very special to Layla, and she preserved it all those years. Then there's a room that talks about the agriculture and economy of the area. And another room that has military paraphernalia from various family members and descendants who served in the Civil War, World War I, and World War II. We have a room that represents children and women's things, clothing and toys. A unique item from the Victorian era is they used to take people's 
hair and form them into little flowers and make a wreath in remembrance of a person after they yeah, pass. They do. So I know it looks a little creepy to some people, but it's in a framed case and we have one on the wall. Oh, that's so great. Uh, from the Fraser the, family? Yes. Wow. So I don't know how they did it. You, when you look closely, it's like these delicate and intricate little flowers made. Very artistic. I know. And I, how on earth did they work with pieces of hair? So that's someday, the, someday when cloning is, you know, you never know. I know. <laughs> and there's clothing in the, you know, women had their tight, tight, skinny little waist. And we have a fainting couch in there with it. And I tell them about how women had to, they had a hard time breathing back then and they were always fainting. So it was common to have a fainting couch so that when they lost breath or fainted, they would have a place to be. So things about Victorian children's toys, it was toys were quite expensive if you bought pre-made things. So they would be inventive and come up with their own. But if they could afford it, their toys were pretty much miniatures of the adult things. We have little miniature sewing machine, iron made out of cast iron, a little waffle baker that was made out of cast iron, and dolls. We have quite a few dolls on display, which unfortunately kids get freaked out about because their parents have let them watch scary movies about <laughs> dolls. Oh, yeah. We have like a little Shirley Temple doll that was just donated by one of the wives of the descendants of the Fraser that she got when she was three years old in 1923. And then we have a room that we've, one of the projects that has happened while I've been here, we have a sleeping porch upstairs and we have, it was used for storage. We've had it renovated and we've moved all our documents and we've turned it into a research library where visitors can come spend time looking through old photos, old newspapers, genealogy, albums, different booklets about the history of the area. And you could spend a lot of time there. Then in the barn, the barn was used through the 1960s. The Frasers rented it out to community members to have their horses there. There's about eight stalls that are on each side of a center aisle. There's in the center, a spiral staircase that goes up into the loft. And there are some old saddles in there and old farm horse equipment and then out back by the barn there's some old farm equipment for harvesting that represents several decades and then we have the native american teepee and i've used that on front of it there are some reader boards that give information about the three original tribes that were in the valley and talks about their specialties and important people in their tribes because the Native American history is very important to this area. Yeah. And then the McCoy cabin is set up. John and his crew set it up like an old cabin with the creaky mattress, <laughs> the bed and a elk skin on the wall. And we've had items donated by the McCoy family. There's a rocking chair that was mm-hmm. one of theirs and some silver set. They rebuilt the fireplace and it has the old cast iron pot that you can pull out of the fireplace that shows how mama used to cook. So there's a lot of good displays here. We have something unique, I think, is our rose garden. We have what is called a memorial rose garden that I'm not sure when it was planted, if that came with the house, but 
we've since had a rose expert. Her name is Baba Sullivan out of Eugene, and she researches pioneer rose bushes because it was very common for the women who came across the Oregon Trail to bring with them remembrances of their home in the form of a rose cutting. Mm. And one of the most common was the yellow rose of Texas, but there were many other varieties that came with them that were long established. So Baba Sullivan, helped, she decided to adopt us and it took several years, but we planted a new garden that is established from roses that she propagated from historic documented pioneer rose varieties. And we got that going a year ago and it's wonderful. Uh, Babe was just here and the local garden club donated namesakes that showed their name and what year that they were established. So that's a new addition and it's a wonderful addition, I think, to the museum. Sounds wonderful. That's that's really cool. Are those roses significantly different from today's roses? As I observe the two rose gardens, they seem simpler in a way, you know, not as hybrid and they seem more muted, but they are lovely. Yeah. And it's just neat to know that it's a part of the history, you know, because it was such an integral part of pioneer life to bring cuttings from people's home state here. An example of that is we have in our front yard what is considered an Oregon pioneer tree. It was planted by the Frasers. They brought, it's a shagbark hickory tree. They brought the nuts with them from Texas. I think they planted several, but this is the last remaining tree. So it's been here for over, you know, almost 150 years and still standing and very beautiful. So I don't know if people realize how important plants were to people. A lot of the pioneers that came were farmers and they would bring with them cuttings from their home to because they knew how important it was to get a garden established right away. I read the kids a story called Apples to Oregon that's based loosely on a family that came to Oregon and the father brought three wagons, I think, full of his plums and apple trees. He named his kids after different varieties of apples. And it was the children, seven children's job, making sure those plants made it all the way to the Willamette Valley. So wow. that's just a, an example of how important it was. He had a child called Wine Sap. And delicious. <laughs> and delicious. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's pretty cool. One of the things I was reading about your exhibits was that when the house was willed to the historical society that all of the contents in terms of furniture and artifacts and that that had been used over the generations were also part of you know what was given to the historical society i thought a that was magnificent few, a few of the original pieces of furniture were but the house had been rented out between the time the Historical Society received it, or the foundation, I should say, received it. And uh, I was accused of by some very good friends of evicting the tenants just before Christmas when the snow was deep and they had no place to go. <laughs> and they never, this, of course, is their story. Now, I've got a different <laughs> And they're teasing him. Yes. Of course. Uh, <laughs> I'm guessing, but, didn't they have some stuff in storage? There, 
there was there was some stuff in storage, and uh, I'm not sure. This has been 40 years ago. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure what pieces, but there were some original pieces from from uh, the Fraser family. I was reading that um, the original director Diane Biggs cataloged 600 different objects that were from the Fraser family. So I think there were quite a few. And then for time, they donated people, different community members, pioneer families have donated items to the museum. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really cool. All right. Now I ask this question of everyone that I talk with. If the museum building were to catch fire, what things would you grab on your way out? Well, I would grab the case of digital files that I was lucky enough to get a scanner last summer and I had an intern spend her summer taking digital copies of old photos and as many documents as I could get her into her hands. And so those would be a wonderful backup of the history and the pictures that we have. And it would be an easy thing to grab. And I think there's a family Bible upstairs in the living room that would be a wonderful thing to take too. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a great answer. We've backed up a lot of files on the computer. So we could, at least documents and photos could be saved. Do you have it backed up in the cloud? Yeah. Oh, good. Good. Okay. What kind of funding model supports the museum and what are your funding goals this year? We do a combination of things. We rely on donations through the door, people who visit. We have random donations. There's some people who will send in $100 every now and then. There's a lady that's a relative, and she'll send in $500 check each year. We have a foundation that was established by Layla Frazier that has a small endowment fund. And through the Milton Freewater Area Foundation, which is actually the owners of the museum, they provide us a support, which is about a seventh of our budget in monthly payments of $900, which helps us keep the doors open. We have one big fundraiser each June. We call it our June Summer Festival, and it's a lot of fun. It involves selling tickets. We have a catered meal. We have music band for dancing. We have have a silent auction. And we get donations from local wineries and breweries of beer and wine that we sell by the glass or the bottle. This year, we almost made $12,000 on that, which was a big deal for us. And it represented so much of the community support. We had 40 different businesses donate items for our auction. Oh, that's marvelous. It's just amazing. And one of them was from a local excavation company, Don Jackson, and he donated a day's worth of labor, eight hours of labor with a big piece of equipment. And that went for $2,500. So things like that, that we're just so grateful to the community for supporting the museum. I send out a quarterly newsletter and we do a a membership drive starting in just a couple weeks where we ask people to be a member. It's basically being a sponsor of the museum for a year. And there's different levels. They can do it individually, family or business. The membership is mostly just them saying, we want to support you. They don't get a lot out of it other than access to us. But it's we're very grateful for that. And they'll get the newsletter when it comes out. Then if we have special projects, we have to go after grant money. Like I mentioned about the restrooms, raising $140,000, that was from a variety of sources. We have a wonderful 
foundation in the Walla Walla Valley called Sherwood Trust, and they've been a great supporter of ours over time. So we just have to keep writing grants for projects. That's a never-ending story. So anytime you do something that isn't just basic operations, that's the way you go about it. Yep. That's very nice, though, that you've got the support and you're able to raise the funds to do what you need to do. That's very good. Now, you have a gift shop and you sell gift shop items, too, right? Yes. We try to feature things made in Oregon or local, a variety of things from jams and jelly, local honey. Then we have some antique kids games and candy and lotions that are made in Oregon, stationary items and toys. So stationary who, who writes letters anymore yeah <laughs> no i do yeah me too <laughs> i like the snail mail you mentioned memberships i was reading that your individual membership is twenty dollars and your family is thirty dollars and it goes up from there is that all right yes yeah okay good and then our membership drive will put special funds that we're trying to raise money for like like the restroom one they could check mark there and add twenty dollars for that so whatever is the project of the time we will list it there or one of the continuing ones is educational support because i do crafts with the kids i'm always having to spend money on the crafts and so people are happy to donate for that and that's another area that they can designate their money to go to yeah, it must be nice having an elementary school very close by. That's that's real nice. We also have a local high school where I try to, when we have events, I'll ask that they have something called the Mac High Key Club, and it's kids who do lots of volunteer work. And I will get them involved by being volunteers to help with little kids' projects. So that's been a good way to get the younger generation involved, too. Yeah, cool. That that work is so worth it, just so worth it. Tell in order for a museum to continue, you have to get the interest of the younger generation. Because when the old timers die off and you haven't done that, what are you? What do you have? You know, you go. You have to keep it, it relevant right. to the current generation, and you have to get kids excited about it and get them to feel that they're welcome here. And that's been an important part of our mission. You mentioned earlier that you had an intern. Are you plugged into local colleges or maybe it's high school kids, but do you, where do you get your interns? We haven't had too many. Through the high school in the summer, they have a program for kids that provide, there's, it's a grant kind of thing where they pay for students to work at various businesses in the community. And for the last, last couple summers, we've had one or two students come and work here at the museum doing different things. This summer we had a Down syndrome boy, I think he was a sophomore, and the program let him come with his mentor and they did grounds work and the program paid for it. And then I had a gal that last summer who is a little bit autistic, but she's a college grad and she loves history. And she's the one I sent the scanner home with. And she spent time going through all kinds of books and documents photo albums and yearbooks and scanning them into the computer for me. So that was wonderful. Linda, John, what kinds of volunteer opportunities does the museum have for members and the public? Most of the time we use volunteers for the events that we hold and for helping upkeep 
the museum grounds. And what I mean by events, we hold two festivals, one in June and one in October. The October Fall Festival takes a lot of volunteers because it's quite extensive. We invite vendors and entertainers and we have games set up for children. We have craft tables and story time with crafts. And we get an old apple press and we get donations of apples from the local apple grower. The Brown family always donates a big box of apples. And we make fresh pressed apple cider, which is quite hard (laughs) to do that all day, where you wash the apples and cut them up and grind them down and put them into pitchers for people to drink. And we give that away free and we also give away free hot dogs. So that takes lots of volunteers. So that's kind of a one-time thing that in the months prior to the fall festival, we have to reach out to get people to volunteer. Our June festival takes volunteers for helping us get donations, get the wine and beer donations, pick up the cases of wine, helping us set up and get ready for it. And then we have two open houses. And I always count on people to help with maybe providing some refreshments, providing some entertainment and that kind of thing. We've been working on a volunteer list. It's not worked out to the way we want, but we were hoping to reach out to people and find out which events they would like to volunteer at so that we could call them when the time comes. That's a slow working project, but we've been lucky though. People have stepped up when we've needed them. So very nice. the community is very in their support. When are the open houses? We have a spring open house, April 1st, the first, the first Saturday of April. And then Right now, we're going to be gearing up for our holiday open house, which is usually the second Saturday of December. We decorate the house all up in Christmas decorations. I usually have parlor music with Christmas music, and we have Santa coming to visit. Oh, and I'll have a Christmas with the kids, and we'll have refreshments like hot apple cider and coffee and cookies. And people can spend money in the gift shop, hopefully. And uh, it's usually pretty cold here then, so we don't do much outside. That is our next event. That's very nice. Very nice. We also sometimes, like November 9th, where the kindergartners are coming to visit the barn, and we have a lady and her daughter who will bring their two cows and their sheep, and we're trying to get some more farm animals that kids can have a kind of a petting zoo. Lots of hot chocolate for everybody. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. Are there any kinds of volunteers you need right now? I'm looking for musicians for my December 9th activity that could play a couple hours, but that's it for this year. You know, since we closed January through March, our board has really stepped up to take the place of we've lost our groundskeeper and they've been our former board president was here today mowing the lawn and blowing the leaves off things. And so between three or four of the gentlemen on our board, they've done a good job of upkeeping the property. But that's always an area that we could use somebody to come help, you know, trim the roses, deadhead them, uh, edging and trimming bushes, mowing the lawn, that kind of thing. I'm sorry to interrupt Linda and John, but it's time to take a break for a few minutes. All right, listeners, we'll be right back.
Are you ready to embark on a journey through time? Join the Fraser Farmstead Museum for captivating historical tours. As you stroll through the charming grounds of the Fraser Farmstead Museum, the knowledgeable guides will unveil the stories behind each historic building. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of the past and discover the hidden gems of the Milton Freewater community. Come visit and take your historical tour today. Connect with them on the web at fraserfarmsteadmuseum.org. You can visit this beautiful wedding venue and local tourist destination at 1403 Chestnut Street in Milton Freewater, Oregon. Email them at fraser1868 at gmail.com or phone them at 541-938-4636. The museum is open on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. and by special appointment for group tours. The facility is closed January, February, and March. There is no admission charge. However, all donations are welcome. Thank you. When you listen to episodes of Preservation Oaks, history goes on and on. Enjoy history with each inspiring episode of Preservation Oaks. The program listeners are calling the most fun and interesting to follow. Hurry over to preservationoaks.podbean.com, where new episodes arrive continuously. I'd like to talk about volunteering, especially as a way to help your growing family. As we all know, there are a million things to accomplish and only 24 hours a day to do so. Many people have no idea how to find time to commit to their local museum, cultural, historical, or genealogical society. But it's a valuable investment in the community and your family on many levels and something that you'll need to make work to realize the benefits. Why does it matter to you personally to get involved in your community? Well, if you're a business leader, it's important to keep your finger on the pulse of the local business community. By doing so, you not only do your part to support local causes, but also stay aware of opportunities to grow your company. While there are a variety of ways to accomplish this, including social media, newspapers, television, social circles and networking, there is no better way than to build relationships by engaging yourself in these valuable organizations within the community. However, if you're raising a family and seeking to train your kids in the life lesson, quote, to do well for your community by doing good, unquote, then it's imperative to immerse yourself and your family in helping the community and having fun while doing so. Maybe you've wondered, how can I volunteer in my community, but still have a lot of fun? If so, being a volunteer at a museum, cultural, historical, or genealogical society could be for you. You'll find great opportunities to work with children in order to pass on knowledge and history. Not only do you get to teach the next generation of kids some valuable life skills and information, but you also get to enjoy the activities while teaching them. Volunteers typically help guide visitors, answer questions, answer phones, perform research, help file, work with children, and a huge number of other things that keep the society running smoothly. You also get to attend the events and learn more about your community so that you can pass this on to your family and friends. Your family will get a sense of belonging, a sense of place. For those who say they don't have time to volunteer, time is secondary. People with a family and other obligations can generally give just a few hours a week, 
You don't have to volunteer for hours and hours of time. You can start by micro-volunteering, with a shift between one to two hours. These societies host a variety of fun activities to bring members and non-members together. These organizations are non-profit organizations, meaning that they have very few staff members on the payroll and rely on volunteers to assist with the rest of their activities. There are always things to do, and if you strike up a conversation with any of them, they'll be happy to help you find something that you will love doing and that helps your family and community. It's an exalted feeling to volunteer your talent, plus the people you spend your time with and the experiences you gain are invaluable. There are literally thousands of people from all walks of life who volunteer their time, energy and resources to museums, cultural, historical and genealogical societies all across the country. If you enjoy books and quiet, the research library is the perfect place for you to volunteer. You will get to organize books and perform research tasks to help others document their lineage. You can be involved in digitizing records and photographs. You can enter records into a database or help the curator. These societies can offer many different activities for you to engage and help by doing something you love. Museums, cultural, historical, and genealogical societies generally work closely with community members, schools, and businesses. They often host events and fundraisers to bring information to the public and improve the success of the area. You can help improve your community by giving back to these organizations that make your community a better place to live. One of the most beneficial and perhaps underrated perks of starting your volunteer journey is the example it sets for those around you. Within your circle, volunteering is phenomenal for the wellness of your community, as you're demonstrating that helping is a core value. From your family members and friends to anyone else in your circle, your efforts to make the time and commit to your community won't go unnoticed. They will set a positive tone in your circle and instill a sense of direction throughout their lives because they will be at the heart of the community. Please consider volunteering with your family today. You'll be glad you did. Nothing to do? Feeling bored and blue? Well, we've got just the thing for you. Tune into Preservation Oak at preservationoaks.podbean.com and unlock a world of wonders waiting for you. Step into a realm of endless listening pleasure with each and every episode of Preservation Oaks. From fascinating locations to captivating topics and history galore, you'll be hooked from the start and talking about it tomorrow. Don't miss out on this amazing opportunity. Follow us now at preservationoaks.podbean.com to get notified instantly whenever a new episode drops. That's right. Jump over to preservationoaks.podbean.com and treat yourself to an array of excellent episodes. You'll have an almost inexhaustible supply of great information right at your fingertips. And there's more. Every other week, a brand new episode will drop and grace your ears. Exclusive interviews, intriguing history, and special topics will keep you coming back for more. Find Preservation Oaks on almost every podcast and social media platform worldwide. We bring you unique perspectives, engaging discussions, and everything you need to learn about museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies, and history-focused media creators across the United States. Get ready for an extraordinary listening experience. With interesting guests, captivating topics, fantastic book reviews to aid your family history journey, and special history-focused media creators, you won't be able to stop listening. So, don't wait any longer. 
Head over to preservationoaks.podbean.com and indulge in the luxury and convenience of dozens of episodes ready for you to enjoy. Preservation Oaks is here to enrich the world and help you to keep on giving and keep on living the good life. Preservation Oaks Podcast, your gateway to history, culture, and fascinating stories. Follow us now at preservationoaks.podbean.com and open the door to a whole new world of knowledge and entertainment. Captain, our computer is picking up a strange signal. Here, sir, you better take a look at it. You're listening to MicroStream Radio and Preservation Oaks. The world's only program communicating the value of museums, historical and genealogical societies across the USA. The most interesting show on the planet. This is Will Hawkins, Executive Director of Historic Tuscaloosa. Happy Thanksgiving from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. This is Tyson Weiner, President and CEO of the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum. Happy Thanksgiving from McMinnville, Oregon. Um, let me catch up on Preservation Oaks emails. Here's one from Sandy in New York, she says. Is it out yet? Okay, here's another one. It's Bill in Arizona saying, is it out yet? Oh man, and now it's Sarah in Minnesota. Hi, is it out yet? Stop, I can't read all these. Let me tell you all, the wait is over. A new episode of Preservation Oaks is released every two weeks, stuffed with information, history, genealogy, and everything you need to know to support your favorite cultural, genealogical, or historical society or museum throughout the United States. Listen to each new episode only at Preservation Oaks. Yes. Nine out of ten family historians agree. Preservation Oaks is the best podcast on the internet. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe. We're here today with Ms. Linda Whiting and Mr. John Ehart from the Fraser Farmstead Museum located in Milton Freewater, Oregon. Welcome back, Linda and John. Thank you. Thank you. How does the museum interface with other organizations or regional societies or state and county organizations? There are museum organizations you can join that are by state or national. We had mentioned in the last section about the local garden club. We consider like Rotary or Kiwanis or that kind of organization. They have been good supporters of us. The local Rotary Club, the local Kiwanis Club, they volunteer. The Elks Lodge contributed a lot at the beginning Mm -hmm. of this, getting the museum going. Kiwanis volunteers at our June festival of helping us set up tables and take them down. So it's organizations that are local is our best connection. Fantastic. What kinds of interesting books has your museum published? We have been lucky to have a historian who's married to a Fraser descendant. His name is Harold Ransom, and he's married to Carol Ransom, who used to be a Fraser. She's the youngest of the 
Frazier's left, Harold, is loves history, and he has spent years researching this area, the Frazier's, the museum, the towns, his own family history, and he has written little booklets that are maybe 20, 24 pages, and on his own dime, he's got them published, made a cover, and he's donated them to the museum, and we sell them in our gift shop for $10 each. So it's been a wonderful gift. He has provided so much history. And people from different places will, that they know their family members interested in a particular thing. Like we just had the 100th anniversary celebration of our local high school and in 2021. And he did a special book that was just on that topic. And so there were a lot of alumni who were interested in that. So he's our biggest resource. So I wouldn't say that the museum has published a lot of books. We did work with him on coming up with a tour guide of historical buildings in our town that includes a map so that people could drive around and see them and read a little bit about the building. And that was something that I did with his help. We got a grant for that through the Umatilla Cultural Coalition. So that was the one book that we've done. Very cool. That's a lot of great work. What kinds of things are available to do on your museum's website? And and I want to remind people that the website is FraserFarmsteadMuseum.org. Well, the most important to us is people can go online and donate. That's always something that we are so grateful for. So they can do that electronically. They can access genealogy through the website. As I had mentioned earlier, there was a woman who spent a decade coming up with genealogy and she put together on she also developed the original website for the museum that included all that genealogy that was put in alphabetical order by pioneer families. When the new website was made, unfortunately, that didn't get transferred. But because there's such a thing as the Wayback Machine that collects everything that's been on the Internet, we are able to link to that and access that information. And I'm slowly working on bringing that over to the new website. Nice. but. All the information is still available, and that's important. There's a few tidbits about the area. If we do any event, we'll advertise there. One of the things I didn't mention when it comes to children is we've tried a couple times. We've had a summer reading book club for kids. This last summer, we did one on the topic of resilience during times of war, and we had a children's picture book that was based on the Revolutionary War called George Washington's Wooden Teeth. The Civil War, we did one on World War One, Knit Your Bit, and we did one on World War Two. So it was at a children's level where we would read the book together and do a craft. And that's another way to try and engage the younger ones. And that's advertised. If we do something like that, that's advertised on the website. Very cool. Thank you for that. Now, you were a teacher. What grades did you teach? I taught a variety of third, fourth, and fifth grades. Through my 24 years of teaching here in the public system, I was also six years the school library in a grade three through five school. Wow. That's a lot of experience. Wow. I think it's the thing that's made me interested in making sure that the museum is pertinent to the kids. Yeah. Has to be. Luckily, the board has been very supportive of that endeavor. So I've been happy. What's the easiest method for members of the public to donate to the museum? 
Well, in this electronic age, the easiest one is on our website. There's a button on the top that says donate and they click on that and it takes them to a secure website that lets them donate whatever they wish. Another way is through the snail mail to our PO Box 764. And those are the two main ways. I know that every now and then through what Facebook does, I think people can donate and it comes through PayPal. We haven't had a lot done that way, but that is a third option. Okay, fantastic. Can you tell the audience about any current initiatives or needs of the museum that you want people of your area to know about and support? On the museum site, I've mentioned that our carriage house needs restored. And while it's not a very glamorous project, it's an important one so that the building doesn't fall down. It's the backside of the building that needs the foundation shored up and the roof. Um, Right now, we have a big two-by-four holding up a section of the roof. And in that section is an old buggy and some old artifacts that we really can't let the public access because it's not safe. So it would be wonderful to get that taken care of and the whole carriage house painted. And we could really turn that back section into a place that is another display room for artifacts for the museum. Oh, yeah, that would be nice. We're still on the search for a one-room schoolhouse, but not sure if that's going to happen. We want one that's from Oregon, if possible. So, I saw an old schoolhouse. I was wondering how close to the Washington border you were, and I went on my map app, and I was looking at the distance between Milton Freewater and the border, and I went east to find other towns that might be close to the border. And as I was going east, I saw an old schoolhouse. I don't remember how far away it was, but I just thought I'd mention it. There's several here on farms, and the people want to keep them because I've reached out to people. I've sent letters, and we've said, you know, we'll put it in your name for posterity's sake, but they like their schoolhouses. wonder why. Why wouldn't they want it preserved? They preserve it themselves, I think, and it's something that they feel like is important for their own history, I imagine. Maybe their family had a part in it or something. Yeah. It could be. Huh. There's a lot of people here with land that they've had for generations. You know, when people came here, they bought large parcels of land, had a wheat farm or an orchard, and they've kept it in the family. And so the things that have grown up around that are very important to them. And they pass it on from generation to generation. Yeah, I was surprised when you said that one of the original pioneers, I think it was the Frazier family, bought 320 acres. I was like, whoa, that's a lot. That's a lot of acres. Well, back then, when the Oregon Territory opened up, the government offered free land to people. And if you had a if there was a couple and a family, you could get 320 acres free. If you were a single person, you got half of that. So my guess is. The Frasers, when they got here, they paid for the 320 acres from somebody that I'm thinking had gotten it free initially. So if you came out and you homesteaded the land, it was yours. And that it was didn't the cost Homestead you anything. Act of 1862, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I don't know for sure, but it's my guess since it was 320 acres that the people who had it before the Frasers, that's how they acquired it. Oh, interesting. With all of your vast educational experience, What are your thoughts about how best to keep history and community support flourishing for the current generation, the K through 12? I think 
part of it is what we are doing here is by making history hands-on, something tangible, not just that you read in a book. Especially in this day and age, I feel like a museum like ours is really important when we have groups of people who are trying to rewrite history or destroy evidence of it and turn it into something new. I think that small town museums are vital in keeping true history alive. And yeah, there's times where there's been mistakes that are made and there's the good and the bad and the ugly, but I think they're all important because there's lessons to be learned. And we shouldn't hide from those things that are ugly or that were bad in our history, but we should learn from them. And for me to get the young kids involved and to learn about that history, no matter if it's good or bad, is important. And the best way to do that is to come, put your hands on things, to walk through the buildings that were here 150 years ago and see how people lived. And that's the way to get them invested and energized. And I know from what we've done, from all the kids, we've had hundreds and hundreds of kids come through here. And from their thank yous and responses, I know that they've been enlightened and intrigued and taken what they've learned home. And to me, that's really special. We do, we started a pioneer day each spring for the entire fourth grade class. It's about 120 students and their teachers. And they come here, we set up stations where they'll divide up into their classes and one group will come through the house and we'll do a scavenger hunt. Another group will go to the barn and see the animals. Another group will go to the teepee and we have somebody who acts as a descendant of somebody who is Native American and tells stories. And we have a man who has French-Canadian trapper roots and he comes and brings our um, real Indian artifacts and fur trader artifacts on display. And then we have a man who works for the school system and the watershed council. And he comes and does educational program at the river where the kids get hands-on, where they study the bugs or learn about the river. One of the things that the Native American tribes and the watershed basin, I think, have been working on is bringing the salmon back to our river. And they're hoping within the next five years to get salmon running up the Walla Walla River, which is on our, through our property. So all of that stuff is important and it brings the past into the future. I agree with you so much that we need to tell all the stories, not just the good ones. Exactly. Or not just the ones that, that conform to our sensibilities in today's age. Right. Yeah. Tell them all. And that's why. People like you are so important, and I love this podcast, and I love talking with people like you. (laughs) Doing a great thing by bringing people into an awareness of what is out there in the places that are sometimes overlooked. You know, we're not on a major road, and so getting people to come here and visit and learn about the history that represents not just our local history, but the history of the settling of the West. Yep. Absolutely. I got another reflective question for you. Why is the museum important to the community and what makes your organization different or unique from others? In our community, it's unique. It's the only one of its kind in Milton Freewater in this part of Oregon. Within what we have from, since we're a border town 
And then you head on down to Pendleton, you have the Native American history, one of the longest running rodeos. Then the county has its historical society. So, you know, we're not alone, but as far as being a border town and being a part of the Walla Walla Valley and the industry that's grown up here, it's important. And on top of that, besides history, we've strived to be a unique gathering place. You know, we talked about the Harvest Host program that brings visitors here. It's part of the tourism where they can come and see other things in town while they're staying here at very little cost at our museum. And we provide the community a place to gather for their important family functions that make memories and are long lasting through the photographs that they make. We have people come here and do photo shoots because of the unique buildings that we have. And it's kind of like we're the entrance into the Walla Walla Valley. So before people end up in Walla Walla and what is to see there, that we are the first that they would come across. So there's a lot of uniqueness. We're a couple blocks off the beaten, the main road, but we worked hard in getting signage so people can find us. And I don't know, it's just been fun being able to promote what we have here. Yeah, you got a great organization. Thank you very much. What's the best way for people to connect with somebody at the museum if they have questions? Email is the best way, fraser1868 at gmail.com. Because we're not here every day, the phone is not the best way to contact us. People can leave a message on the phone, and I try to get back as soon as I can. But because my schedule is somewhat flexible, too, it's not the most reliable way. So email, I look at that and answer them every day. So that's the best way. Okay, thanks. Is there any other information or any message you'd like the community or members to know about? An important thing is I would, if I was talking to the Milton Freewater Area community, I would want them to know how grateful we are for their support through our events, through volunteering. This museum wouldn't be here without long hours put in by volunteers through different organizations and through donations, monetary support. And it, it happens because of the community. And the board is a part of it, and they're wonderful, supportive. They volunteer their time. And it isn't about me at all. It's about the local community and all the people who put themselves out with time and money to help support us. So we are forever grateful. And that's what I would like them to know. All right. Thank you. How do you think your members, volunteers, and the community view you and the museum in terms of benefits and value? I know that I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from community members when we have our events. People are very gracious in extending their thankfulness for us providing the venue and the events that we've done. Our last summer festival, I heard over and over, this was our best one yet. and. People have been very kind to me as I'm an outgoing director in expressing their gratitude for the work that I've done. And I'm humbled by that. So I think that they view the museum as a wonderful gem in our valley. Lots of treasure here. Absolutely. Thank you, Linda and John, for spending time with us today. Really appreciate it. I've learned a lot, had a great time. Both of you are one in a million. It's just been fantastic spending a little time with you. You're preserving a beautiful and historic museum, which is a credit to your community. You, without a doubt, 
your organization without a doubt are Preservation Oaks. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. Thank you very much for what you do and for the great job uh, you do of presenting it and preparing us. Yes, definitely. And with that, we'll end our time with our guest, Mr. John Ehart, local historian, and Ms. Linda Whiting, the director of the Fraser Farmstead Museum located in Milton Freewater, Oregon. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap-up, which is coming up next. a todos los amigos de Milton Freewater, Oregon. ¿Sabías que la historia de Milton Freewater es una rica mezcla de muchas culturas? En el corazón de Milton Freewater se encuentra un tesoro de historias y legados que se extiende por generaciones. El Museo de la Granja Fraser y la Sociedad Histórica del Área de Milton Freewater quieren invitarte a ser parte de esta historia. Te invitan a involucrarte y descubrir la riqueza del pasado. Hay muchas maneras en las que puedes contribuir y ser parte de algo especial. ¿Tienes espíritu de voluntariado? Les encantaría que te unieras a ellos como voluntario. Ayuda en eventos. Conserva artefactos históricos o comparte tus propias historias. Toda ayuda es bienvenida. Además, si tienes hijos, ¿por qué no llevártelos? Quieren que ellos también se sientan parte de la comunidad. Tienen programas educativos y actividades emocionantes para niños de todas las edades. No importa de dónde vengas o cuánto tiempo lleves en Milton Freewater. Todo el mundo es parte de la comunidad. Juntos, todos podemos honrar nuestras raíces y construir un futuro brillante. Por lo tanto, venga y únase a nosotros en el Museo de la Granja Fraser y en la Sociedad Histórica del Área de Milton Freewater, juntos. Podemos preservar nuestro patrimonio y forjar amistades duraderas. Para obtener más información, visite nuestro sitio web en fraserfarmsteadmuseum.org. Envíenos un correo electrónico a fraser1868 gmail.com o venga a vernos a 1403 Chestnut Street. Esperamos darle la bienvenida con los brazos abiertos. La historia es nuestra. Hagámoslo juntos. Gracias por ser parte de Milton Freewater y su legado. All right, all right, welcome back. Ms. Linda Whiting is a caring, intelligent, well-respected, knowledgeable, capable woman leader and educator. She has provided services as director for six years and before that, 24 years as a teacher and librarian in Milton Freewater. She has quite literally helped educate hundreds of Milton Freewater children and community members. She is such a font of knowledge about Milton Freewater history. And we certainly learned a bit during our brief time together. Still, Linda says, quote, 
I want the community to know how grateful we are for their support. This museum wouldn't be here without long hours put in by volunteers through different organizations and through donations, monetary support. It happened because of the community, and the board is a part of it, and they're wonderful and supportive. They volunteer their time, and it isn't about me at all. It's about the local community and all the people who put themselves out with time and money to help support us, and we are forever grateful, and that's what I'd like the community to know. It was also such an honor to meet John Ehart, one of the founders of the Milton Freewater Area Historical Society. I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to speak with John to get his thoughts about some of the topics we discussed. Even at more than 90 years of age, John and his family are still in the process of rescuing and preserving the history of, and telling the story of, the Milton Freewater area. John is truly a gem, or as we say, truly a preservation oak. Per Linda, the most pressing priorities of the Fraser Farmstead Museum and Milton Freewater Area Historical Society are, number one, Linda is currently looking for musicians who can play a couple of hours at the December 9th annual festivities. If you can do that and help, please connect with the museum. Number two, Linda needs to find a volunteer who can do the landscaping and maintenance of the museum grounds. Number three, Linda is trying to find volunteers and funding to repaint the Fraser house. It needs to be repainted. Number four, and finally, the carriage house building needs to be fixed quite soon before it falls down. It's currently being propped up by temporary wooden supports. It also needs to be repainted. Please, if you're a musician or a painter or a builder or a contractor who can help donate your time and talent to help, connect with the museum and help to get these things fixed. Anyone in the area, please help by donating funds to buy the paint, lumber, and any other supplies needed to restore and paint these historic buildings properly. Your help is needed, and I thank you for it. A quote from Linda, I have to say in my six years here as director, the community support here is just astounding. They are just an amazing group of community members, and we are very fortunate in that respect. Linda is now an outgoing director, who I am certain will be missed. It's evident from our conversation that she and her team of volunteers have been busy all the time with one thing or another in service to the community and in education of the young in the community. What a wonderful legacy Linda has left for the new director, whomever that is. I want to wish Linda a magnificent retirement and the best of luck and community support and engagement for the new director. I hope the new director can expand the facility so there is an indoor educational and community gathering facility on the property at some point and that the farmstead is preserved for centuries to come. There are so many historical gems mentioned in this episode that it was so interesting chatting with Linda and John. I learned a lot about Milton Freeman and Oregon and it was so delightful. It's like reading a fantastic book. I just get lost in the conversation with the history of the area, the history of the tribes in the area, the building and artifacts on the property, and on and on. Delicious. 
I'd like to thank Linda and John once again for that. The museum is supported almost 100% by donations and volunteers. Please help support the Fraser Farmstead Museum and the Milton Freewater Area Historical Society today. Linda and John reviewed the funding and fundraising particulars of the museum, so you know where the funds are going and what the priorities are. Please, have your wedding at this magnificent and cost-effective venue. Have your gathering, your party, business, or club meeting at the Fraser Farmstead Museum. A wonderful, beautiful, and peaceful place to have your events. The Fraser Farmstead Museum, located in Milton Freewater, Oregon, is truly one of our nation's preservation oaks. One last time, the contact information for the museum. The website is fraserfarmsteadmuseum.org. They're on Facebook at Fraser Farmstead. Their physical address for you to visit is 1403 Chestnut Street, Milton, Freewater, Oregon, 97862. Their mailing address is P.O. Box 764, Milton, Freewater, Oregon, 97862. Their email is Frazier, F-R-A-Z-I-E-R, 1868 at gmail.com. You can phone them at 541-938-4636. The museum is open Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. and by special appointment for group tours. The facility is closed January, February, and March. There's no admission charge, so come on down. However, all donations are welcome, and I hope you donate liberally. If questions occur to you and you'd like more information, please connect with the museum via the contact information provided. If you're a listener in the area the museum serves and you're not already a member, please consider joining and supporting them. I hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the museum is to the community and what kinds of excellent services they have to offer to their members and the public. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Score Wizards, Juan Luzon, Scott Holmes, and Symbolbird. Microstream Radio is a registered trademark. You can visit us at www.microstreamradio.com. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by Microstream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of Microstream Radio. Thanks to everybody for listening. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. We'll see you all next time on Preservation Oak. And until then, keep on giving and keep on living the good life.